Hi, everyone. Uh, today's episode is a continuation of last week's. It's not exactly a part two because the subject matter is completely different. Uh, on this week's episode, it's not about any of the mentally ill being abused or tortured by people in an asylum. Um, but it does feature the same protagonist, Nellie Bly, the journalist from the New York world from the 1880s and 90s. So it's not necessary to listen to the last episode to appreciate this one. But if you want a complete story, go back and listen to episode 13, Nellie Bly and the Asylum, and that will set you up for this next one, which is, I think, far, far more pleasant. Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. Escape from New York is a great movie. It is. Watch it, if you haven't already. The whole thing is utterly committed to its own absurdity. Escape from New York, it was made in 1981, and it was set in the then-future of 1997. The future of the late 90s! And at the beginning of the film we see what looks to be a computerized model of New York City, which has been turned into, of course, an apocalyptic prison facility. And in that science fiction movie, the computer images, they're portrayed as blocky, pixelated, monochrome, and they're supposed to look very obviously like something that a machine made, like something you would see on a screen. However, by the time actual for real 1997 rolled around, computer images had advanced far beyond what director John Carpenter thought they would look like. Uh, by 1997, computer images didn't really look all that blocky anymore. Well, some did, but they didn't necessarily look pixelated or 8-bit or 16-bit. Jurassic Park had made realistic-looking dinosaurs a few years earlier, and by 1997, Real computer imagery was being used in television shows like Babylon 5 and Deep Space 9 to construct massive space battles. Also in the 1990s, I was kind of obsessed with Myst. And the whole point of Myst really was that computer images could look lulling and calming and kind of artsy. The computer imagery of actual for real 1997, far outperformed the fictional computer imagery of Escape from New York's science fictional 1997. Today's episode is about something like that. It's about real life passing up, exceeding, and being more impressive than imagined fiction. Science fiction writers often overestimate what we can do. Uh, 2001 came and went and we have not sent humans to Jupiter yet. Um, also, if we were going by Star Trekian timelines, we would probably be in the middle of a eugenics war and then a post-nuclear horror right about now. Um, we don't have hoverboards, despite it being 2015. Back to the Future 2 was kind of off on that count. But very often, writers of imaginative fiction, they fail to predict advances or they underestimate what actual, real humans can be capable of. Escape from New York is a great example of that. Also, think about 
all the science fiction movies that you've seen where there's all kinds of technology and, you know, ray guns and innovations in transportation, but there's no internet. Almost no one predicted that. Jules Verne's 1873 book, Around the World in 80 Days, is very much about technology. And in that book, the protagonist, Phileas Fogg, and it is sometimes wrote Phineas Fogg, but I'm just going to use Phileas Fogg for a duration of this podcast. Phileas Fogg, he uses steamships and trains, specifically, to circumnavigate the globe faster than anyone at the time thought possible. That title, Around the World in 80 Days. If you were a person in 1873, you'd go, really? They can do that? Let me find out. And if you've read the book, um, I guess spoilers for a book that's well over a century old, uh, you know that Phileas Fogg barely makes it. He almost does not hit that 80-day mark. In fact, at the end, Fogg thinks that he failed, that he circumnavigated the globe in 81 days. And the twist is that he forgot about the international dateline, that he actually lost today when crossing the Pacific from east to west, and in his timetables, failed to account for that. And upon realizing that, he completes his 80-day journey just in time. So, he goes in there just under the wire. The idea of around the world in 80 days is that that is barely possible. Last episode, I talked about Nellie Bly, the journalist from the New York world who wrote about an asylum from the inside after faking insanity. And this week, I wanted to talk about the other thing that Bly is known for, and that's for showing up fiction, for doing Jules Verne one better. Bly, in another bit of dramatic daring-do stunt reporting, uh, she decided to beat the imagined barrier of 80 days and to go around the world in 75 days. And here she is pitching the idea to her editor in her own words. I want to go around the world in 80 days or less. I think I can beat Phileas Fogg's record. May I try it? To my dismay, he told me that in the office... They had thought of the same idea before, and the intention was to send a man. However, he offered me the consolation that he would favor my going, and we went to talk with the business manager about it. It is impossible for you to do it, was a terrible verdict. In the first place, you are a woman and would need a protector. And even if it were possible for you to travel alone, you would also need to carry so much baggage that it would detain you in making rapid changes. Besides, you speak nothing but English, so there is no use talking about it. No one but a man can do this. Very well, I said angrily. Start the man, and I'll start the same day for some other newspaper and beat him. I believe you would, he said slowly. I would not say that this had any influence on their decision, but I do know that before we parted, I was made happy by the promise that if anyone was commissioned to make the trip, I should be the one. Bly's editor said yes about a year later, and she readied herself for circumnavigation. And during her packing, she made a point to not carry all of the bags and packs and everything that would surely delay her. Um, she goes into detail about how she took, in fact, very little with her. Uh, she had a single dress that she wore all the time, and had only a single bag, and said that even with just that single bag, she's still overpacked. Um, I have done a moderate bit of travel, and I can attest to you that you always do want to go as light as possible. And there will always be something 
in your baggage that you think is essential and that you never actually use while you're out and about on the road. So Bly, she sets out from New York to London, and then France, where she went out of her way to meet up with Jules Verne, against whom she is kind of sort of competing. Um, and here's her account of talking with Verne uh, about the book and her own project and the possibility of her maybe beating him. How did you get the idea for your novel, Around the World in 80 Days? I asked. I got it from a newspaper, was his reply. I took up a copy of Les Siecles one morning and found in it a discussion and some calculations showing that a journey around the world might be done in 80 days. The idea pleased me, and while thinking it over, it struck me that in their calculations they had not called into account a difference in the meridians, and I thought what a denouement such a thing would make in a novel. So I went to work to write one. Had it not been for the denouement, I don't think that I should have written a book. Again, that's Phileas Fogg not taking the international dateline into account. That's, you know, the big dramatic beat-the-clock twist at the end of the book. And here's Bly again. I looked at the watch on my wrist and saw that my time was getting short. There was only one train that I could take from here to Calais, and if I missed it, I might just as well return to New York by the way I came, for the loss of that train meant one week's delay. And this is actually something that I find very impressive about Ply's endeavor. She doesn't actually go into a lot of detail about it, and I wish that she did, but it is implied with passages like this that her timetable is actually incredibly short. One of the things that I was slightly frustrated by while reading Around the World in 72 Days, um, yeah, spoiler, she makes it in 72 Days, that's kind of the title of the book she wrote, um was that she goes into a lot of detail about things that she sees and people that she met, which is good, but I was really into the logistics. And there's only implied logistics here uh, when she's talking about how she's staring at her watch and might miss a week because of missing a single train, rather than, you know, a lot of rigorous details about timetables. Anyway, I can imagine the general public maybe didn't want to read that, uh, maybe wasn't interested at all in train schedules because they had to deal with train schedules on a weekly basis. But as a modern person, reading this as a historical thing, um, I did find that interesting and wish she went into more detail. Back to Bly, though. She also mentioned seeing Verne's study, his workspace. Uh, she described it as, for the most part, very clean and orderly, and as somebody who you know, writes professionally on a regular basis. I find that deeply hard to believe. Uh, she got to look at a manuscript that Verne was looking at, albeit one in French, so getting a sneak peek at his next book would have been kind of difficult. And here is a map that Verne had where he described the path of Phileas Fogg. While we were examining the wealth of literature that was there before us, Monsieur Verne got an idea. Taking up a candle and asking us to follow, he went out into the hall, stopping before a large map that hung there. Holding up with one hand the candle, he pointed out to us several blue marks. Before his words were translated to me, she is speaking to Verne through a translator. Verne speaks a bit of English, but not enough to carry on a comfortable conversation. I understood that on this map he had, with a blue pencil, traced out the course of his hero Phileas Fogg before he started him in fiction to travel around the world in 80 days. With the pencil he marked on the map as we grouped about him, the places where my line of travel differed from that of Phileas Fogg. Bly's travels 
mostly kind of uh, did track with Phileas Fogg's trip. The big difference is that she went around India, where Phileas Fogg just went through it. But her route is going to take her uh, through the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal, around India, stop at Ceylon, and then she's going to go to Singapore, to Hong Kong, Japan, across the Pacific, San Francisco, back to New York. Or rather, New Jersey. Bly again. Our steps lagged as we descended the winding stair again. It had come time to take farewell, and I felt as if I was separating from friends. Down in the room where we had been before, we found wine and biscuit on the little table, and Monsieur Jules Verne explained that, contrary to his regular rules, he intended to take a glass of wine that we might have the pleasure of drinking together to the success of my strange undertaking. They clinked, they being Jules Verne and his wife, clinked their glasses with wine and wished me Godspeed. If you do it in seventy-nine days, I shall applaud with both hands, Jules Verne said, and then I knew he doubted the possibility of my doing it in seventy-five as I had promised. In a compliment to me, he endeavored to speak to me in English, and did succeed in saying, as his glass tipped mine, good luck, Nellie Bly. And she would need a bit of luck, because, unknown to Bly, she had competition. Cosmopolitan had sent another reporter, Elizabeth Bisland, around the world. And, man, this is really different from Cosmopolitan publishing, like, five sex tips to drive your man wild. This is way cooler than Cosmopolitan doing that. But Cosmopolitan, they had sent Elizabeth Bisland around the world to go in the opposite direction of Nellie Bly and try to beat her. So now, Nellie Bly was trying to beat Phileas Fogg, and Cosmopolitan is trying to beat the New York world. Bly didn't know that into well into her trip, and here she is when she finds out that somebody is trying to beat her record, uh, and she's talking to a man on a ship that she's met on her travels, who's been reading the newspapers about this. The man says, you're going to be beaten. What? I think not. I have made up my delay. Uh, she got delayed earlier, but she got better. I said, still surprised, wondering if the Pacific had sunk since my departure from New York or if all the ships on that line had been destroyed. You are going to lose it, he said with an air of conviction. Lose it? I don't understand. What do you mean? I demanded, beginning to think he was mad. Aren't you having a race around the world, he asked, as if he thought I was not Nellie Bly. Yes, quite right. I'm running a race with time, I replied. Time? I don't think that's her name. Her? Her? I replied, thinking. Poor fellow, he is quite unbalanced. Yes, the other woman. She is going to win. She left here three days ago. I stared at him. I concluded the man was quite mad, so I forced myself to laugh in an unconcerned manner, but I was only able to say stupidly, The other woman? Yes, he continued briskly. Did you not know? The day you left New York, another woman started out to beat your time. She's going to do it. She left here three days ago, uh, here being Hong Kong. You probably met somewhere near the Straits of Malacca. She says she has authority to pay any amount to get ships to leave in advance of their time. Her editor offered one or two thousand dollars to the O&O, that is a steamer line, if they would have the Oceanic, that is the name of a ocean steamer, leave San Francisco two days ahead of time. They would not do it, but they did do their best to get here in time to catch the English mail for Ceylon. If they had not arrived long before they were due, she would have missed that boat, and so have been delayed ten days. But she caught the boat and left three days ago, and you will be delayed here 
five days. So, the race is on. Now Bly isn't just competing against Jules Verne's hero. Now she has a real, live rival to beat. Now, in my last podcast, I mentioned saying that I tried to not have heroes. As much as I might admire or be interested in various historical figures, you're never going to find somebody who you can like unreservedly. Uh, you will always find that they have feet made of clay, and that's true of basically any historical badass, and that includes my almost hero, Nellie Bly, as well. And I admire that she was young, daring, that she was willing to fake insanity to get thrown into an insane asylum. Uh, she also covered the Pullman strike from the perspective of the striking workers, which I think is highly admirable. Uh, later on in life, she would go on to cover World War I and women's suffrage. But when it comes to her views on race in around the world in 72 days, they are pretty, let's say, anachronistic. The overall impression that I've got is that her views on race were progressive-ish at the time, but they would not hold up at all in a modern context. She notes, for example, the low wages that workers working on the Suez Canal received. Also, she notes the number of lives lost during the construction of the Suez Canal. So, she definitely sees the cost of imperialism, and she definitely seems to have sympathy for many of the people she encounters. Uh, especially a lot of the beggars on the streets who are trying to get money from the obviously more wealthy Westerners. Uh, but during her travels, she still keeps the non-white people she encounters at a distance. Bly's racial sensitivities. They were far more progressive than, say, Rudyard Kipling, who wrote his famous poem about the white man's burden and how it was Britain's job to, you know, go around the world and spread imperialism for the good of non-white, non-Western people. But it's kind of like your old racist grandmother who doesn't know that it's not okay to call people Orientals. It's kind of like that. And she makes a lot of assumptions that I think are, let's call them unjournalistic. Here's a good example of her assumption making. Uh, this is when she's in the Arabian Peninsula near the city of Aden. Just before we began to ascend, the ramp up to a boat, we saw a black man at his devotions. He was kneeling in the center of a little square formed by rocks. His face was turned heavenward, and he was oblivious to all else except the power before which he was laying bare his inmost soul, with a fever and devotion that commanded respect, even for those who thought of him as a heathen. I inferred that he was a sun-worshipper from the way in which he constantly had his face turned upward, except when he bent forward to kiss the ground on which he knelt. So, obviously she is expressing a certain amount of sympathy and admiration. However, she is not using any rigor to find out what is actually going on, and she is allowing her own assumptions to fill in the blanks, and that is not cool. Uh, and completely unacceptable by today's standards. Also, you listening, uh, you probably were able to figure out that the guy was probably a Muslim at regular prayers because her description matches that far more than any imagined sun worshippers who live in the Arabian Peninsula. And here's another example of Bly's assumptions and also racial not-coolness uh, from when she visited Japan a country near and dear to my heart because I used to live there. I lived there for about two and a half years. And she is in Kamakura, 
which is near-ish Tokyo. Well, okay, it's near Tokyo if you have, you know, modern trains that will take you there in, like, a couple hours. Anyway, she is describing a gigantic bronze Buddha statue. I went to Kamakura to see the great bronze god, the image of Buddha, familiaritively called Diabutsu. It stands in a verdant valley at a foot of two mountains. It was built in 1250 by Ono Goryaman, a famous bronze caster, and is 50 feet in height. It is sitting Japanese style, 98 feet being its waist circumference. I had my photograph taken, sitting on its thumb, with two friends, one of whom offered $50,000 for the god. Years ago, at the Feast of the God, sacrifices were made to Diabutsu. Quite frequently, the hollow interior would be heated to a white heat, and hundreds of victims were cast into the seething furnace in honor of the god. It is different now, sacrifices being not the custom, and the hollow interior is harmlessly fitted up with tiny altars and a ladder stairway by which visitors can climb up into Diabutsu's eyes, and from that height view the surrounding lovely country. Okay. I have seen that statue uh, in person. One of my old Facebook photos used to be me standing in front of that very statue that Bly is describing. A couple things. It's not Daibutsu. It's Daibutsu. Daibutsu merely means Big Buddha. Literally. Daibutsu. That's the two kanji that mean Big Buddha. And I think that a Bly wanted to do a little bit of digging, she could have found that out fairly easily. And also, Buddhists, they don't really go in for human sacrifice. The Daibutsu at Kamakura was never actually used to cook people. It just happens to be hollow because making a giant solid metal statue is more expensive and difficult. And also, Japanese Buddhists don't really worship the Buddha as a god. Uh, some sects do think of him as a divine figure. Uh, other think of him as merely an example of everything that humans can hope to be. But really, they don't think of the Buddha as a god the way we would think of, say, Yahweh or Zeus or Osiris or that kind of thing. I really like Nellie Bly, but come on, she could have been a little bit more rigorous. And again, this is why I try to not have heroes when I'm looking into history, because you're always going to find stuff like this. Bly also constantly mentions the poverty of the locals. She makes a point to talk about begging and asking for money. Uh, and just by going by her writings, you wouldn't know that non-Western people were capable of civilization. And again, not as bad as Kipling-esque imperialism, but not acceptable by modern standards. And a big criticism, I'm, I feel like I'm being hard on Nellie Bly in this podcast, but I do want to make clear that I think that this was an incredible endeavor of hers. I think this was an amazing project, and I think that she is a complete badass for doing it. But a big criticism I have of Around the World in 72 Days is that Bly doesn't really dig into the context or the history of the places that she goes to. She describes spectacles, entertainment, food, hospitality accommodations, but far less in the way of more substantive commentary. In Ceylon, for example, she writes about a play that she sees and about snake charmers and street performers, but she doesn't get into, for example, that island's relationship with mainland India, or the history of British imperialism, or a particular kind of Buddhism that exists on Ceylon but not other places. <sighs> but maybe I'm asking too much. Because, in a way, I totally understand this kind of travel writing. 
Bly was in her 20s when she was traveling, and when I was reading Around the World in 72 Days, I was able to see myself in her writing. Again, I spent about two and a half years in Japan when I was in my 20s. I also traveled to Korea and China, as well as around Japan, when I was there. And when I touched down in a foreign country for the first time, okay, not the first time, I'd been to Canada before, but you know, that doesn't really count. And being from Portland, Oregon, and going to Vancouver, BC, uh, you just go to another different part of Pacific Northwest, except now with the metric system. But when I touched down in a, you know, foreign, foreign country, Japan, for the first time, I was not thinking, for example, about Asian history, about World War II, about Japan's post-war recovery, or that country's speculative real estate bubble in the late 20th century. Instead, my experience was one of sensory overload. And a lot of my old blog posts that I wrote incessantly while I was there, because I was constantly overcome with new experiences, they reflect that astonishment at suddenly being submerged in a wholly different environment. And around the world in 72 days, it reflects that. In a lot of ways, it's about that. Bly, she's not talking about, you know, the history of British imperialism in India or Hong Kong, but it's a great example of how amazing it is to travel. In quite a lot of what she writes, it rings true for anyone who's been on the road and been to new countries for any length of time. Kind of a recurring theme that I like is that Nellie Bly talks about the strange people that she meets uh, when she is on boats or in hotels or on trains. And when you're traveling, you have that experience. You're suddenly thrown into this new situation with people that you don't know, and you meet these new friends who can be kind of weird. For example, Nellie Bly, she meets a guy who is obsessed with taking his pulse. He takes his pulse after every meal, when he wakes up, before he goes to bed, and he sees it as this all-important health indicator, and is happy to tell everybody else he meets about how important pulse-taking is. Uh, she meets a guy who records all of his steps, and is sort of, again, obsessed with that as kind of a, I don't know, life hack? Affectation? Obsession? Um, she meets a very, very religious girl who tries to preach to her, and she is not receptive to being uh, witnessed at. Uh, she meets another guy who talks about his creepy, psychotic, violent thoughts. And that, again, it rings true. That kind of happens. Conversations like that really do happen, at least in my experience. Travel opens you up to meeting people and characters that you otherwise wouldn't have. Again, I feel like I'm talking about myself a lot in this episode, but again, I once had a long conversation in a Spanish-language bar in Japan with a Turkish skateboarder guy, mainly because we were the only dudes who spoke English in the place. Had I met him just in my hometown, I probably wouldn't have made his acquaintance. Uh, when I was traveling in Seoul with a friend of mine, we got into a long, weird conversation with this sort of out-there woo-woo Italian guy who was really into transhumanism. And I don't think Bly's portrait of the world is the best, but I think her portrait of traveling in her 20s is actually pretty good. Also, she bought a pet monkey on her trip, which, you know, that's kind of cool. I'm a big fan of Why the Last Man. It's a comic book series. There's a pet monkey in it. You should read it. So again, Bly, 
She goes from France through the Suez Canal, uh, Aden on the Arabian Peninsula, Colombo on Ceylon, Singapore, Hong Kong. Then she goes to Yokohama, and then from there, San Francisco. And to make it in under 75 days, to beat Elizabeth Bisland, the New York world actually chartered a private train from California to pick up Bly when she arrived on the West Coast. That blows my mind. Back then, newspapers, yes, newspapers, which are now laying people off left and right and closing and dying and everything, they were wealthy and powerful enough to charter private trains. I want a private train to take me across the North American continent, but I suspect that if I ever tried to expense that, an editor would tell me no. Um, Bly, she did eventually make it back to New Jersey, and her time, in her own words, was... 1,734 hours and 11 minutes, being 72 days, 6 hours and 11 minutes. Average rate of speed per hour, exclusive of stops, 22.47 miles. Average rate of speed, including stops, 28.71 miles per hour. That is not counting her side trip to see Jules Verne, which was just over 179.5 miles out of her way. She beat Phileas Fogg, Yes, she did beat Elizabeth Bisland, and she proved that real-life achievements can sometimes be far more impressive than fictitious ones. She beat Phileas Fogg by over a week. She didn't need the international dateline to come in there and give her a loophole for last-minute success. She just straight-up did it. Bly's record of 72 days, it would only stand for a few months later in 1890, an American businessman named George Francis Train he would circle the globe in 67 days. And in 1913, that time would be knocked down to a mere 36. Uh, nowadays, of course, you can go around this crazy planet of ours in less than a day or two. At age 30, Bly would go on to marry an industrialist, and later she invented new kinds of milk cans. Um, a few years after that, her much older husband died, and the company that she inherited went under because of embezzling from her underlings. Bly returns to reporting later in life, uh, writing about the Eastern Front of World War I and women's suffrage. And I like to think of her as kind of a progenitor to the various 20th century new journalists like Norman Mailer, Hunter S. Thompson, and Gay Talese. And yes, I know it might sound initially weird to group a bunch of doodly dudes with the likes of Nellie Bly, but those guys were known for their first-person narration, for their personal accounts of odd situations, like Gay Talese hanging out with swingers or Hunter S. Thompson hanging out with the Hells Angels, for their embrace of their given narrative voice and their own biases, as opposed to assuming a generic journalistic voice. That was considered innovative in the mid-20th century, in the hot new journalism thing. But Bly was doing a version of that kind of writing for newspapers and periodicals back in the 1880s and 1890s. And for me, she's up there with Thompson and Talese, when you think about notable narrative journalists. Uh, in my own writing, I don't generally use the first person. I try to be fairly removed from my topics. Uh, again, this episode of this podcast, obviously an exception to that. But when I do occasionally type that uppercase I, in a news story, in a feature, part of me thinks of Nellie Bly, the woman who showed up Phileas Fogg. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash interesting times with Joe Streckert. I tweet at Joe Streckert. Um, also, we are now on Stitcher, 
We're also on iTunes. Uh, search for Interesting Times in the iTunes Store. And please do give us a rating and give us a review. And you can find more information about every episode at interestingtimespodcast.com. Also, very soon, I will have a rather sizable announcement. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. So watch this space. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.